0: I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is The Uncivilized Podcast. Everyone, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this first episode of our second season. I know it's been a long time since our last episode. There's been a lot of upheaval in my life since then, much of it good. My family and I had the opportunity to live in an amazing biophilic community in rural Georgia for 2 months over the summer while my husband was filming a show. Some of you may know that he is a screenwriter, which is why, for now, we're based in Los Angeles instead of an off-grid cabin in the woods. We're working on that. Anyway, you are going to hear more about that community and more about what a biophilic community is in this episode. So I am really, really excited to tell you about the different direction the show is going to take this season. I had a lot of time to think about it over the past several months. I left last season feeling like we had thoroughly explored this idea of how disconnected we are in the modern world from the natural world, from the way we've biologically evolved to live in the natural world, and yet I I didn't really know where to go from there because the truth is most of us, myself included, feel stuck on this treadmill um, of this industrialized technology inundated life that we are living. But I started thinking, well, what would happen if we left it all behind? What would that even look like? How far back in history would we even go? And so this season, we are going to immerse you in the world of people who have actually done that. They have left their modern industrialized way of life behind to actually create a radically alternative kind of existence in the 21st century. So there are going to be families raising their kids in off-grid cabin homesteads in the mountains. Uh, we're going to bring you people who are journeying around the world to learn from the few remaining hunter-gatherer tribes, or perhaps even someone living as an actual Paleolithic hunter-gatherer in the Pacific Northwest. I don't want to spoil it at all by saying more, but you get the idea. There will be a more limited number of episodes this season. They may not be on a regular schedule. Not surprisingly, some of these interviews are really tough to coordinate. These aren't necessarily people checking email regularly, but I think you'll agree that these interviews are worth the wait. Okay, so on to our first episode of the season with Steve Nygren, the founder of Serenby, that biophilic community where my family and I made our home this past summer, Serenby is located about 40 minutes south of Atlanta in Georgia's Chattahoochee Hill country. It is built around a 25-acre organic farm. There are hiking trails that connect the three hamlets that currently make up the community. There are playgrounds in the woods, edible blueberries lining the streets. The whole thing is set on 65,000 acres of preserved forest and land. It is truly amazing. And I was really excited to actually have the opportunity to speak with Steve before we move back home to L.A., Uh, to take a walk in the woods with him and hear how this all came to be just a note i was in no way compensated for this interview we decided to rent a place in serenby just because we were excited to check it out once we knew we were moving to the atlanta era the atlanta area temporarily uh, we wanted to give our girls a summer with lots of nature and a lot of freedom and that's exactly what they got and we really enjoyed our time there so i hope you enjoy this interview with steve and maybe one day even have the opportunity to visit sarin thank you in advance for listening thank you so much for your support please help us entice more amazing interviewees by leaving us a rating and review on itunes if you feel so inclined uh but only if it's good and i will be back soon with another episode
1: do you have an idea where you want to go um where do you like to walk are you actually a trail walker yeah i mean i know all the trails
0: You built all the bills, right? Did you actually
1: work on them at all yourself? Well, you see, what a lot of people don't realize, um, this was our weekend place. And watching my children connect with nature on the weekend, and we had a tremendous house in Atlanta, in Ansley Park. We could walk three blocks one way to Piedmont Park and the Botanical Gardens. Two blocks the other way to the High Museum, Symphony Hall, and mm-hmm. all the restaurants on Peachtree. We had an incredible house with pool, media room. Uh, they had matching Barbie cars that they could all drive. It was everything that you thought you wanted.
0: You were living a dream. And we thought
1: it was too. Yeah. So this wasn't as initially the farm was just a whim that resulted from a weekend drive, and I thought we might come down maybe once a month and we rented the main house out. My wife fixed a shack in the back in case we ever wanted to spend the night. So you and, came
0: down here and you just bought it on a whim?
1: Oh, it was an afternoon drive. Okay, My wow. wife saw this historic farm for sale uh, uh, just southwest of the Atlanta airport. And so I called and said, we weren't interested in buying anything, but our children at three, five, and seven, you're always looking for something to do. So we thought this would right. be fun. And I couldn't imagine that there was open land this near the city. So it was just a kind of a curiosity to to see that and something to do on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And so um, I called and clarified. I wasn't interested in buying anything. But, of course, anyone with something for sale says, come on. And we arrived. They had the Shetland pony saddled, and we bought the farm. Wow.
0: Uh, What year was that?
1: That was 1991. Okay. And I had no idea why I was doing it, other than I was pleasing the four females in my life. And, and I thought it was a good investment, open land so this three close. three daughters. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and so it was just kind of a whim. Um, and so, as, as I mentioned, we rented the main house out. Uh, and my wife said, well, there's this shack in the back. I'll fix that up in case we ever want to spend the night. And it's where the whole family voted to come every weekend. They voted to come to the farm for vacations rather than Disney World. Wow! And I realized how important connecting to nature is, especially to children.
0: And now what kind of background do you come from? Did you grow up in the country?
1: I grew up, uh, I uh, am a generational uh, farm uh, in Colorado. My family is Swedish in various branches who arrived in Boulder County, Colorado uh, in the 1860s. Wow. And we have been on that land uh, ever since. And in my generation's watch, it all became suburban Denver.
0: Oh, so this was, this
1: so, was a nugget
0: from childhood then.
1: So all of a sudden, uh, and, and looking back, I understand that. But um, And so touching back into nature uh, with my children, I could really understand how important this was to me. Now... I could hardly wait to get around away from the farm. You know, I was never going back. And, you know, off to university and... and
0: uh, right, because when you're a kid, uh, you have big, grandiose plans, right? Oh,
1: and, and yeah. you're, you're on the farm, you're working hard, nature. Are you kidding me? It, I, I didn't realize anything. So I never thought about it until we were spending the weekends here with the kids. And suddenly, it all started coming back, and I understand, understood in a very different way the importance now, along that line, uh, 10 years later, uh, Richard Liu wrote Last Child in the Woods. Of course,
0: I know that And
1: book. we're nature Nef- deficit disorder. And so I, I, I sent uh, Rich a note after several people had sent me the book and said, Hey, this, this feels like this is," And I said, Rich, thank you so much for giving voice. To what I intuitively felt as we moved our family here. yeah, And that's what Rich has done. I mean, what we were seeing in our children and how they reacted to nature is what Richard Louv describes in that book is how important it is for child development to connect with the natural world.
0: Yeah. And so what was the difference? I mean, like, what was their life like before versus when they came here?
1: Um, well, we had a... Uh, I mean, this is
0: the 90s, right? So it's it's still pre-internet, which is amazing that, like... You felt the pull away from nature even then? Well, know?
1: we didn't necessarily feel the pull away from it. We, we thought life was great. We lived in Ansley Park, which is an incredible uh, inner-city neighborhood. Uh, we were fortunate to have one of the largest lots. It was an acre lot in the middle. It was the original... Uh, architect that developed this whole area in 1900 okay and it was his house he chose on wow. the hill and then it had uh, during World War II it had been divided into apartments and had remained apartments until we bought it uh, in the 80s and restored everything back so we, we had just we were never going to leave we'd walk you, you would see the skylights of Atlanta out, out our front windows and you went out the back And it looked like nature because it was on top of the hill and you didn't really realize the other houses. Uh, We could walk to two parks. Uh, There was five acres landlocked behind us with the 26 houses shared. For inner city, it was just ideal. We couldn't imagine it. And yet there was this pull. And so then when we sold that house and moved here full time and restored it, and it was about 6 months after we'd been here and at dinner one night the children are now 6, 8 and 10 and i said well girls are you glad that we made this decision cuz you know they had the they had the pool we had all these wonderful things yeah and they kind of looked at each other and garnie my oldest said yeah i said what is it and i thought they were going to talk about the bunnies they had we now had horses all the things we were able to do yeah and she said the freedom And I said, what do you mean the freedom? And she said, well, we had that big yard, but we knew you were always looking out the window to see us when we were in the yard. And we could never ride our bicycles on the street without an adult being there. And out here, we're totally free. Now, that tugged at my heart because I, number one, did not realize how uptight we obviously were. And number two, that the children were aware of how uptight we were. Right. About them being in the... Oh, you
0: all know the tricks to getting around the mud. I'm not paying attention.
1: (laughs) So, um...
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that she was able to articulate that, but that's the biggest change I see in my kids from coming here. And I'm the kind of parent who wants my kids to have what, you know, a lot of people call a free-range childhood now. But in L.A., it's really, really tough. You... Even if you want to, you can't. I mean, there was like a train right next to us and a lot of, unfortunately, homeless individuals and uh, a lot of cars. And here, it's like my my older one has been going to the farm. She walks by herself. She's seven to go pick up my CSA box.
1: And how empowering that is for her.
0: She loves it. I mean, I'm, I'm scared to go back a little bit. Rightfully so. Yeah.
1: And, and, and things you didn't notice will bother you a lot more.
0: Yeah. Should you want to keep walking? Should we sit? What do you feel like doing?
1: Up to you. Have you been to the little waterfall?
0: I have. have, I've, I've hiked almost every single inch of it.
1: Okay. I'm a big hiker. There's a wonderful bench you can sit by there.
0: Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so, so they, they grew up with a sense of freedom and do you see now? I mean, obviously they're grown up. Do you see how they're different from other kids of their
1: generation? Uh, I do. Uh, they're all self-confident. Uh, they were all leaders in school with class presidents and various positions in the university with sororities. And they, there's a noticeable difference. And I think one of the best compliments, um, they went to... Uh, Woodward Academy. Uh, it's actually the largest private school in the continental United States. So lots of kids.
0: So there wasn't a public school option here?
1: Uh, there, uh, there was. That's one of the reasons this area was saved is because the schools were so bad. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so uh, in Atlanta, a lot of the kids are going to public schools. So our kids had all, uh, they were in, in, in high school at this point. And the uh, student counselor, um, they were expecting their first child and he called us and said of all the kids I've seen your kids are so grounded I'd like to know how to raise a nigran what have you done (laughs) (laughs) so I think there is a good example where you're having a counselor dealing with kids of all ages in a school system yeah he could he Notice the difference, right? And I believe one of the biggest differences is, is is we had the the courage to really step off the treadmill and move out into nature, uh, because uh, we just saw what it was doing. We intuitively understood what, what Richard Louv. Yeah. Now I know everyone doesn't have that opportunity, and what we're really talking about a lot now is we need to work about bringing natural nature into our urban areas. Uh, we've done a terrible job over the last several decades of of how we have developed and built places that we expect people to live. And it's both through regulations and ruts that uh, we have removed what I think is the two most important things for a vital life, and that's connection to nature and connection to each other. Right. And if you look at most places that we're developing now, we've removed them from both.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. well, that's one of the things I really noticed, too, is just the first couple of weeks when I was here almost felt like a cocktail party. <laughs> like I just Because I was talking to everyone I encountered, you know, and, and people were genuinely interested in wanting to get to know me. Um,
1: and shouldn't life always be a cocktail party? Why, you know, why, why do we feel that it shouldn't be?
0: Although I, do, I heard a rumor that you're an introvert. Is that true? Do you sometimes get, get sick of interacting with everyone?
1: <laughs> it's not that I get sick of it. Yeah. But it's, um, I don't have to be with people. I don't seek that out. Right. But yet it's it's a natural kind of thing. I, I became cons- so concerned about saving this area because we do like all the things that a big city has to offer and connecting with people. Right. Uh, so... When we were worried that this area would turn into suburban, I didn't want to move another hour away. I didn't. I, I didn't want to move to, totally to the wilderness to raise the kids. Yeah, I wanted to still be uh, connected or, or interplayed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's what's so interesting, I think, about Serenby, is that you know there are there are places where people go to live in small towns that mm-hmm. are far away from a lot of other people. There are people go and live off the grid now who don't want to deal with modern life, and yet. You've tried to really like combine both of these things and create this urban, small urban existence in the woods, and I'm just so I'm curious like who are the people who are coming to live here? What's driving them there? You know, everyone it's asks a unique me. Type, you know? Everyone I mean, wants
1: to know who's here. Yeah. And, and and if you look at it, there's a variety of ages. I mean, we have we have single young people, we yeah. have young families, we have uh, midlife people, we have elderly people here. Uh, I I love Phyllis Blywise. she said for my 80th birthday I had friends from every generation and the 20 and 30 year olds were sincerely my friends, they weren't just coming to be nice. Right. Uh, And so that's what we see happening here. Uh, If if you look at uh, uh, politically, uh, 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 ethnic, uh, sexual orientation, it's, I, I can't put anything in a box. And finally I came up with two things. Okay. Everyone here has a passport which means there's a global outlook. And this isn't, you know, this. sometimes people renting, it's not a matter of wealth that indicates that, it's a matter of curiosity. Yeah. That they have traveled and they're aware. And everyone that would come and live in a place like this, uh, they have hope. And I've noticed that people that say, I don't understand this. When I've really talked to them, I realize they've lost hope. They, they look at the news all the time and they think, that that nothing can be better. A yeah. Th- few years ago I read a, a a study that the National Home Builders did, and this is a national study for the United States, and it was an alarming I think sixty-eight percent of the people did not like where they lived. Wow. Now just think about that. Yeah. Now unfortunately I don't think they have a choice. We haven't been building places that give people good choices. And one of the issues is is our back in back. one of the issues is the financial community keeps funding places that they can have a feasibility study on right and when you're forward thinking in places like this, they just don't fund them
0: interesting so okay let's let's back up a little then like when you were first coming up with the idea for sarin what did you look to then? I mean, I know, obviously, like, there's... The U.S. has a pretty long history of what you might call, like, new urbanism and experiments and kind of utopian places to live. But did you... did you, Were you aware of that history? Were there other communities in existence like this? What did you look
1: we to? We were very aware of the new urbanist movement because we took the kids to seaside all the time, which is where that began in America. Okay. Um, but...
0: Oh, I think we're gonna have to walk actually, because we're getting the construction noise. Sorry. <laughs>
1: Shall we go. Maybe we can move around. I yeah. Guess. Okay.
0: I definitely don't want to, you know, talk about all this beautiful nature and then have the and then have that. I know. I did.
1: You see, I clearly tuned it out. I didn't even notice.
0: Yeah. It. Well, let me just ask you. So, how long is all this construction gonna go on? Like, when, when will Serenby be th- complete?
1: Feel- we are more. T- was
0: that your coffee cup, by the way? No,
1: I was going to take it to trash, but I I'll don't get want to it. carry I'll it back. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've never had Sarah be so torn up, everywhere. Okay. Uh, and I, that's a good sign, is that we're expanding so much and we're so busy. Yeah. That we have things going on, whether we're expanding the wastewater treatment center, pools, roads. It's just we have things going on everywhere. So, uh, I think this is the most diverse. Uh, uh, construction we have, and it, it, it's really affecting every area of Serenby right now. Okay. Uh, so, I, uh, I I think that's what 2018 represents. By 2019, we should have settled down most places, and, and we'll, all the construction will be really focused on uh, Mata which is our third phase.
0: And then that is that the final phase?
1: Oh no, we are already uh, have plans for uh, uh, two more phases after that.
0: Oh wow. And so can you talk about what they are yet?
1: Uh, I can talk about uh, uh, the next one. Uh, so we're building out motto, uh, which is on, on uh, health and wellness uh, and all the commercial areas that would go along with that. Okay. We, we, have, um, we have four really strong components uh, as, we, as we build. Uh, as I mentioned Connecting to nature and to one another, we think, is the real foundation of what we need yeah. uh, to have. But then when we looked at the other things that bring vitality, uh, it's the arts, our food, right, our education, mm-hmm. and then our health and wellness. So those are sort of the four legs to the stool that base all this. Um, I never finished answering your one question about yes. where did what where was the influence coming from and we found the countryside of england where a lot of density exists in the hamlets villages and towns but yet you feel all the countryside and after world war ii they put really good land policies in because they could not afford the urban sprawl because the island was only so big
0: it's a small country
1: and so, if you're there, you realize the buildings do not follow the road out of town like they do all over America. You're in country, and then there's a hard edge, and you know you're when you're driving into the village.
0: Okay, explain that a little more, because I can't quite picture it.
1: So, in Los Angeles, you do not know when you're driving from the city limits to Los Angeles to any of the other towns. Right. Imagine if there was a half mile, a mile of forest or farms in between those city limits with no buildings on it.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: But we just allow everything. If it doesn't come together totally, and across America you see the filling stations first and then the strip mall and all these buildings are following the core city. Right. Instead of making them all be in the core city and just spread that circle out. And, and then that's where the density happens in, in pods right? rather than being spread out. Okay. If you look at Napa Valley, you've been to Napa Valley. I have been to Napa. So imagine if Yauntville had a hard edge and you didn't have all the things on the main road, all the buildings on the right, main road, and they had to locate in Yauntville and Napa and the various little towns rather than any of it.
0: So what happened in the U.S. then that that happened in versus England?
1: Well, we did not have strict land laws, and so we just let sprawl. We felt like we had unlimited land, and so we just let the sprawl happen. And
0: then we reserve land in national parks, away from everyone. That's right. But not in our day-to-day lives. So you have to drive to it. Right.
1: And so we have disconnected it.
0: Yeah. Nature is somewhere else that you go to for vacation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I think about that all the time, that, you know, we there's been this renewed interest in nature and people going camping and going outside, but we still view it as very much like a separate thing. You know, it's like, that's where all the animals live. And that's where the habitat that we preserve that humans can't touch because we'll destroy it, you know? And then we live in our cities and do our things where we pollute. And yeah, I think about that a lot, how we should be a part of this. We should be a part. That's what you feel. I mean, I wish I could describe where we are now, but it's, I mean, we're standing, it looks like we're in the middle of an old growth forest.
1: With a stream and rocks and yeah. birds and the animal life is all here. Yeah. And that's when um, when we came out and decided we were going to do something. Primarily as a preservation. Uh, but I realized that was, that no one was really interested. It was too hard to raise money for just preservation. So we had to find a model that was balanced between development and preservation. And so that's when we stepped back and... Um, I realized i couldn 't buy enough land to protect us so it, so not, wh- how,
0: what was the initial initial purchase well
1: I, uh, initially I bought sixty acres okay, and then when we i retired yeah um, we gradually over that ten year period from the first purchase uh, until my awakening uh, in those ten years, we put two more parcels together, so in two thousand, we had three hundred acres okay. And that's when I became panicked with a couple things happening that urban sprawl was headed this way, and so in the next five weeks, there in early 2000, I bought another 600 acres, and then I realized I couldn't keep doing that. And yeah. 900 acres really didn't protect us from the path of urban sprawl, and that's when I stepped back. Uh, and a dear friend was Ray Anderson, and one of the big environmentalists. He was uh, when the White House created the Council on the Environment, he was the first chair. He was the uh, creator of carpet squares and founder of Interface Carpet. Interfaith Carpet. Okay. And
0: Interface Carpet. Interface Carpet. Not Interfaith Carpet. No, Interface <laughs> Carpet.
1: And uh, so, when at dinner one night, and we'd known Ray for years, I said, "Ray, you know a lot of the really smart people who can help me save this area." And Ray uh, asked the Rocky Mountain Institute. And so in September of 2000, the Rocky Mountain Institute brought 23 people. And we had a two-day conversation. Georgia Tech documented it. And so this was the forefront of about thinking about environmental issues. Um, now, to put things in perspective, September of 2000, the first LEED building hadn't been certified. This was a wow. lot of forethought in in early thinkers uh, on some of the major issues. Uh, and then when... I realized that there wasn't anyone really applying a lot of these things to the built environment and we needed to do that. I realized that we had to think bigger than our 900 acres uh, because most models that I have seen in land policy end up accelerating the destruction of the area rather than being a model. If you look at Seaside in Florida. Crossing in Chicago, Davis in California And what happened years there? Around. Because
0: I actually don't... Well, I know it, about Seaside, but I don't know I, what happened. I mean, they're
1: great places, but what's happened is all people doing traditional development come right next to them to take advantage of what they've done that you need. So you
0: have one little community
1: focus. And, and then other people kind of focus. Got so, it. Okay. so I stepped back at that point and said, we need to think larger, and people won't do this voluntarily. It needs to be regulation. And so we spent the next two years bringing 500 landowners together both pro-development and pro-preservation. And we brought them together with a a united, balanced growth approach to this area. Uh, We uh, brought transfer development rights, which are a whole other subject to the state, and that was passed in 2003. And uh, so this is a real model in how you can have balanced growth. And preservation is triggered as part of anything developed. So it's very unique. So we will, um, this is 65,000 acres now. Wow. um, And we're the first development under these regulations where 70% of the land will be protected and 30% will be developed. But in the 30% that's developed, we'll put 20% more housing than Atlanta has done per square mile in the last three decades, and that's representative of most urban cities.
0: So this could go way beyond what we have right now, then. You're saying, will this be spread out? I mean, not spread out, but will...
1: The idea is this could be like the countryside of England, to where we could accommodate a huge portion of Atlanta's growth while saving 70% of this tree forest. And it
0: would be all
1: dispersed among that 65,000 acres. In little pods, dense pods, walkable pods. And then we have bicycle paths and trams and what have you between the various pods.
0: Wow, I did not know that. I thought the plan was just serenbee so no
1: this was a much bigger and so serenbee is really the petri dish if you will to show that this can happen yeah now when when i was looking at this this wild forest and talking about townhouses and live works and coffee shops uh my friends from the development community past thought i had really lost it they were coming out wanting to know where the marijuana patch was because they knew i had to be (laughs) on something and so um I I had somewhere through this research area had fallen through the the threshold of passion in that I realized no one was applying these principles to the built environment, and it didn't seem that complicated, and that I absolutely had to do it. Uh, And so while uh, real estate, financial community, everyone said, this is crazy, it's not going to work, we realized we had to do it. And I was a big believer in Midtown Atlanta and bought a lot of property there in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And so I was able to leverage that property uh, to begin the first section here. And what we found is the market was ready. Uh, I sold the first 20 lots in 48 hours. Uh, and 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 the next 20 in six weeks. And then I had nothing to sell until I did the next phase. And Yeah. So, Uh, So that was my awakening. But still, uh, people would say, oh, it's a bunch of Steve's friends. This still isn't going to work. And then after the recession, number one, we lived through the recession. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: But most of the analysts uh, in studies were showing that walkable communities and environmental communities were the first to come out of the recession. So suddenly the financial industries were more interested in places like this than they'd ever been uh, when we were in the boom days.
0: And why do you think that is? Do you think people just started reconsidering their lives? They were downsizing? I mean, what happened?
1: Well, I think you have two things. And so uh, you have the millennials who, many of them grew up in the suburbs, and they want walkable communities. They want some of these reconnections. And and they're the ones really moving back to our inner cities where we have a lot of these principles uh, existing
0: and moving to cities that are smaller cities that are you know putting sustainable planning into into practice
1: totally so they're 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 much more aware it isn't just the baby boomers and then the baby boomers uh are starting to want the same thing
0: yeah my uh my husband's father and and his wife actually moved back to new york city because they they want you know they don't want to live on a golf course somewhere they want to like See people so and this eat is great very food different
1: and, than ge- yeah. than older generations so yeah. there, there's a real trend, and we just and so what we were had really had done through an environmental but the density we were an early uh, indicator of what was about to happen to the market
0: interesting
1: now um, um, so coming out of that. Suddenly, a lot more people were talking and very interested in what we were doing. Yeah. And so I had to start thinking, what have we done? I mean, I, I knew what we had done, but how do I start to articulate it? And, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit of new urban, urbanist, but we're much more because they're not environmentalists. And we're environmentalists, but we're, we're not, we're also pro-development. Uh, we're farm to table, but we're much more than, than uh, the, the, the food movement. And so when I was really looking at, at what and who we are, yeah. I realized we're a biophilic approach to development and planning. And no one was really articulating
0: yeah. that. Well, I, and I want to talk about the environmental aspect, for sure, because that's so important. But I also, I just want to talk about, you know, when you initially developed and this plan, I, you know, I've talked to some people in the community who seem almost surprised at the extent of the development. I mean, that they almost envisioned that they were going to be living in the Airbnb on 60,000 acres with nothing else happening. So, you know, how do you answer those kinds of, uh, like, they're not really criticisms, but, you know, people's expectations, like the balance of the fact that it has to be pro-development, but also you have to develop in order to preserve the landscape. I mean, that you can, can you have it all? I mean...
1: No. Okay. And what is L? Do they... A lot of times... So, number one, if anyone looked at a map, there should be no surprise. Right. Uh, and the w- way I look at it is people, for whatever reason, are want to stay where they are, even if they don't like where they are. Now, I can't understand that, but yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's, we have a society of fear that's built up over the generations. And the way we're raising our children, we're raising a f- generation of fearful children. Yeah. And so, having something different frightens them. Yet, 68% of the people don't like where they live. Antidepressants have increased fourfold each decade for the last two decades. There's something very wrong, but why do people not want to change? I often think about it, it's like if you're floating down a stream. Most people will work hard to stay where they are. Right. If you relax, you're going to have a whole new experience, but there's fear. There might be a cliff ahead of you. And that's what we're afraid of. Yeah. Um... And so, in communities like this, everyone moves here and thinks it's wonderful, and then they want to close the door. Right. And they don't have trust that this whole thing's going to be developed differently. They think the next hundred homes will bring urban sprawl development, and that's not the case at all.
0: So, you're thinking but, bigger.
1: But what it does bring is more shops. More interesting neighbors uh, when i 've had some people say something like that, I said okay well let 's see you moved here when uh, three years ago, okay, so if we 'd stopped development uh, let 's name the friends and the inner reactions that you have now that you wouldn 't have had because they wouldn't have had houses to move here for yeah uh, let 's think about the uh, restaurants that couldn 't have opened because there wasn't enough business, and people they, they don 't think big picture because somehow, the world they live in uh, has a fearful approach to move forward.
0: Right. And that's very sad. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that you had said that. I, That's an interesting way to think about it. Um, well, I think, too, I mean, it certainly must have effect, an effect on the housing prices. Because if you had just closed off development, I mean, you can already see housing prices have gone up here a lot, right?
1: That's right. In the
0: past couple of years. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so, you know... When you're looking at this huge vision of that this could be like a lot of connected communities like Serenby and this whole movement and something that looks very much like the bucolic English countryside, do you think that expanding on that level will send, maybe not send prices down, but enable more types of people to live here? Could you envision this working for, say, like, you know, lower income? I I, (laughs) I think the the
1: question you're dancing around is where's the affordable housing? Yes, thank you. Uh, Now, here's another thing people do not look about. We, we, we always work, we always focus on the stories uh, where there's been regentrification and people have been displaced. Uh, the, what doesn't get enough stories is the communities that, did, that lost their executive housing and they've gone bankrupt or had to reduce all their services because they don't have enough uh, homes paying a higher tax. Uh, for any community, you should know what your balanced budget should be. To deliver services, right? Uh, generally, it's somewhere between 200 and 260 thousand dollars per house. Now, what that means is you need as many homes above that line as below that line if you're going to be a sustainable tax based community. Okay. Now we're in a 65 thousand acre where they were all below that line, and we could have never stood on our own. And this is why it was part of Fulton County. Yeah. So this was not self-sustaining as an area because we have attracted executive housing we have been able to balance that and so now we have independence in our planning we've been able to bring a charter school and we've been able to bring a lot of the amenities to an area that had only affordable housing right and it's it's about balance is what we're not looking at and so yes as we grow this out is that we still do not have more houses above that line than we do below it. Right now, once that gets closer, then we can look at some wonderful models we have on uh, on affordable housing. Um, have you been over to the Rural Studios, uh, 500 uh, square foot houses? Here. Here.
0: No, I haven't seen well, them. I saw the row houses, the one the Scandinavian right. well, one. Well,
1: this is if if you um, I don't know if you know about uh, Auburn University's. Uh, uh, Rural Studio (coughs) program, excuse me. No, I don't. So this is a program that's probably 25 years uh, old now. Okay. And uh, their students, um, they give them, uh, divide them into teams, the architectural students. And each team gets $20,000. And during their three years to learn to be an architect, uh, the, the team are asked to go out and find someone who needs shelter. And that person who is homeless will be their client for the next three years. Okay. And they are to build as a team with that $20,000 a house for that person or that person's family. It's an incredible program. And there's been a lot. They have received awards and MacArthur grants and all sorts of things. Yeah. And now there's been great interest in affordable housing. And, you know, can we have the plans? Let's buy the plans. Well, it's a program to teach architecture. They don't have plans they can sell. This is all a, a program, and but they realized they were missing both an opportunity and a responsibility. And so, for their transfer students, they had them start to perfect four of their best cottages, and then here, um, a little over two years—gosh, it's been three years now—they were looking for someone to partner with to build these uh, for the first time. Okay. And while Serenby seemed like the least illogical place to build these affordable housing models, it turned out to be the perfect place, because we were willing to do it number one. Yeah. Uh, we had a need for it, and so this is part of our art farm campus. so we use the cages for our visiting artists. Got it. But now the rural studio can also bring professors or press down to stay in them because we use them for periods of time and we can block them in a block. We're also willing to monitor all of the uh, utilities so we can give them the feedback they need. Yeah. Uh, and it was the first time, so we we bid them out. They had never been bid out to builders, so we really partnered with them to find out what the real nuts and bolts of building. Now the key thing is, for affordable housing, we should build smaller houses but with high architectural integrity and in America we've tried building similar houses just cheaper and then the doorknob comes off and people don't feel good about where they live even though it might be bigger than what you know so we believe in smaller spaces that might be smaller than people are used to but it should have high integrity and we need to be m- living more in community, in nature, rather than the four walls.
0: Right. Well, coming from California, that's very much how people live. And, you know, there's such a housing shortage. And a lot of those houses, like in L.A., were built at a time when people needed much smaller housing. I mean, our house that we moved from uh, here was 1,100 square feet yeah. for a family of four. But there are a lot of people who live like that in L.A. And, by the way, those are not inexpensive houses to live in, you know, Um
1: but if you look at affordable I, housing across the country, that's not the model.
0: No, I know. And I actually, I I have to admit, I was actually surprised. I've seen those beautifully, thoughtfully designed smaller houses, you know, here in Serenby, mm-hmm. my brother and sister-in-law stayed in one and I loved it. I think it was 800 square feet and it had like everything you could ever want. Right. For, But some of the houses are really big. I was surprised that because I, I guess coming from California, I, I kind of think when you're in the outdoors, you need so much less space, but I'm wondering if you know, some of the people moving here are used to, I guess, a certain size of house? Or are you trying to accommodate all sorts of ranges of people here?
1: I want to say something about affordable housing, and then I'm going to answer that question. That's okay. Yeah. The other big problem we have with affordable housing is we don't look at energy costs. So we might build an affordable house for someone, might even give it to them, and then they have these huge energy costs per month. Right. So I think to really responsibly build affordable housing, there should be net zero to where that family that occupies that does not have to worry about their heat bills. And and it's possible to do that today for yeah, affordable absolutely. housing. So that's one of the models we want to we want to bring okay, in. Okay, interesting. So yes, Serenby does have various size houses. Yeah. Um, we're building the foundation for a responsible community. That doesn't mean that we're setting judgment on what size house you should build. We require every house built here to be environmentally sound. And we have small lots. I mean, our estate lots are a half an acre.
0: So even those bigger houses are, it's a much smaller footprint is what you're saying.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Not only their footprint on the land, but their environmental footprint about using resources. So, yeah. everyone has a different need, or a different supposed need, could be emotional or actual, right. under what size house it is. Yeah. Um, there's all, it, this takes all kinds of people. Yeah. Um, I find if you, if you start getting to that point, you start touching what I call an intentional community. And when I find yeah. intentional communities where they have such narrow views of what is right... Uh, they have huge conflict. And one of the, one of the great ones, um, in, not in the United States, I won't need to name it, uh, I was so excited to go because I'd heard so much. And we were invited and we had dinner with a lot of the leaders and uh, I found out that they have three councils for conflict. And they were very interested in how we deal with conflict. Wow. And we don't have such councils, I mean, not that we don't have some conflict, but not to the point we have councils, Yeah. Uh, generally, you know, if there's conflict, whoever's the largest voice, we put them in charge of the issue, uh, <laughs> and it either gets solved, or they I've stop complaining. I've
0: heard that actually, from, yes, I have heard that <laughs> yeah, for it's, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's changed complaining a lot, because if they complain too loudly, they know they're going to get to solve the problem. Yeah. But I also believe that you need a certain amount of sandpaper to have a fine finish. And so you need a variety of people and a variety of kinds of houses to really build a community.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I love that perspective. Okay, we should probably head back because I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But can we talk about... go
1: this way?
0: Let, So let's talk about um, the environmental aspect of it because I think it's so important. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I was looking at this community aside from all the access to nature. But the fact that people care. You know, that you live in a in a community where people think about these things. So would you describe this as an environmentalist community?
1: It's one piece of it. Okay. But it's not who we are. When you say environment, what do you think about?
0: Well, I, I actually, environment is the wrong word. I should say sustainability, you know.
1: When you think sustainability, what do you think about?
0: I think about uh, zero waste, plastic reduction, um, uh... You know, renewable energy, um, all the things that make a community sustainable with the least footprint possible, you know, on the outside
1: world. That's right. But that doesn't have anything to do with arts or education. Right. Or land use. Yeah. So I'm only putting this out in when people talk about an environmental community. Yes, that's one of the silos. Right. And we... Develop this way? and speak in silos. And we aren't looking at the integration. And this is why I say we're a biophilic community. Okay. Because that is the interaction of all living systems, which much better describes us. Because environmental energy, that's basically talking about our natural resources. Okay. And doesn't go beyond to a lot of the things that feed us in various ways or the interconnection of the animal life uh the fauna that we're moving through right if you truly look at any environmental programs they have very little to do with everything that we're enjoying right now yeah so this is why it's more about a biophilic which people aren't talking about versus any one of the silos whether it's whether it's our food systems whether it's reserving our energies, uh, whether it's uh, food uh, waste. Those are all silos within the bigger picture.
0: Well, okay, so let's talk about food waste for a second, because I was interested, I'm a big composter back in L.A., but I was interested to, tell me about the composting program in the works, because I started to hear a little bit about it from the farm. I know it's not quite in effect yet, right?
1: As we have grown, we've had we found how difficult that is. Uh, And so we we did a great job when we were smaller. Uh, Then we had problems both with educating people, finding containers that were easy because we found the um, compostable bags that we were using weren't that compostable. Yes, they were, but it took forever. Okay. And so we're really finding in in food uh, composting uh, what is the right program that deals with ease so that everyone will do it. Yeah. Economics, so that we're not having to uh, actually um, put a fee on it. It should be a natural thing. Right. Um, and so we're coming up with, with what that is. The big issue is a container to hold people's compost that's easy when you have three or five hundred containers to deal with.
0: You're saying in terms of collection?
1: Well, it's easy to collect it, but then if it's not self-composting, somebody has to dump it and wash it. Well, you have
0: to do that with your garbage container anyway. Same
1: thing, right? Well, but then what you're saying is everyone should have to personally take it somewhere and compost it. If you're going to wash out your own.
0: No, I'm just, I, you know, I look to a lot of other cities, I know this is a much smaller model, but that have composting programs. And, you know, you just have your composting pail outside, you have your trash pail outside, and, and there's a compost collection that comes and picks it up. And right,
1: but that's a visual pollution.
0: Right, and, you and, have-
1: then, and then who, and then they return the dirty one to you and you wash it out yourself.
0: Oh, see, so because you're saying here in Serenby you have the garbage cans in the ground. You're saying, what do you do about compost? That's
1: right, otherwise you have visual pollution.
0: Oh, got it, okay. Well, I can tell you what I've been doing since I've been at Serenby. What's that? I have been collecting compost in my apartment, in the freezer, and when I go to pick up my
1: CSA box, I give it to the farmers. See, and that's perfect, and that, that's that's a program we you do, and then that puts the self-responsibility on the person, which is good. What we found is that'll be about 15% of the people, which is better. And we maybe need to do that. Well see, li-
0: that surprises me in a place like Serenby. I would think that so many people would be eager to do things like that with a
1: little bit of education. Well, I think you're you're misinterpreting us as an intentional community versus a great place to live. Okay. Everyone here isn't necessarily an environmentalist.
0: Right, but I know a lot of people come here for all oh, the sustainability features on the that's houses. That's one of the things, yeah. absolutely.
1: So Are we going this it's, way? Yeah. Okay. So it's,
0: it's finding that mix. Yeah. And...
1: and uh, We're certainly struggling to do that, but we want something larger. Now, I think that's a good idea. uh, We should put that out as a as a program to start. If everyone will just freeze it and bring it in, that's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, I mean, in the houses, you can have your own sorts of containers that are in the house. Um, Yeah. You know, it's just because we've been in the lofts, mm -hmm. staying in a smaller place. So, um, and what about like, have you? Is there a plan in the works to reduce plastic consumption? Like, I know there's been a big push to ban plastic straws in a lot of cities. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: We would we would love to, and where we do it is to make things easier. So you'll see, like the bamboo juice you see in, in most of the restaurants or grocery store, we have a lot of bottled more than you'll normally see anywhere in glass. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah. And
1: so you'll see, we while well, we support that and try to make it, and we're trying to find ways to do that. Now, one of the big issues we're looking at is glass recycling is very difficult in finding someone to take it because that market's disappeared. Yeah. And so that's the other thing we're really looking at is what is, the, what is the full circle on everything?
0: Interesting, okay. And
1: so we're at the forefront of a lot of these issues. But what we want to do is make it something that will be adapted to a more general public than what you could find successful in an intentional type community. So you
0: want to make people feel like they can ease into it rather than you live here, you must have a zero-waste lifestyle. That's right. Right, got it. But it's interesting, you know, I... I, I have to think that living in a place like this certainly makes you more open to all of those ideas, right? Because
1: Well, I think a good indication, and I haven't kept the records, because uh, when we started, we were really keeping records on this. And we're going to do that again now. We've, we've changed our, our, our recycling people. They're really going to manage that for us. Cause, uh, <clears throat> but when we first started, I forget now what the number of containers were, that we pick up all the trash and recycling and composting yeah and so we had these big roll-offs that they take it to and within three years we had not increased our trash our trash roll-off containers where we put our our trash yeah stayed the same our recycling was three times interesting so people without us insisting by simple education but just a culture of making it easy right they change their habits right and that's what we think is successful for a bigger model
0: yeah okay interesting Um, so what do you what would you like to talk about that I haven't asked you about
1: Oh, what would I like to talk about? Yeah, what have well, people
0: asked you about that you wish people would?
1: Um. Well, we, we talked about affordable housing and that whole thing there. I think the um, the true understanding about health and wellness and how the built environment can really affect our mental and our physical health. Yeah. There are many studies now that are coming out proving this. Uh, Isn't it amazing
0: that we need studies to prove that?
1: We are in a society (laughs) where we only honor our intelligence. Yeah. We have forgotten how to follow our heart or our gut. Yeah. And no wonder we're a fearful society. Yeah. Uh, We have lost spontaneity in our life. How sad. I know. And maybe it's Sarah, but you see, you, you, yeah, I think you you related to it, felt like a cocktail party. Watch your stuff. Some people say, like, it feels like I'm back on a college campus. And a big piece is that spontaneity in connecting with people that we just have lost somehow.
0: Right. Well, especially since the internet, too, where you can, like, research everything. And, you know, you don't contact someone unless you text them first or it's been great I mean we see we're playing with the kids and someone says let's go grab some dinner or want to come over and yeah I and you know at the risk of sounding a little cheesy when you're talking about you know like tapping into like did you say intuition or Mm -hmm. yeah since I've been here I've actually had a number of uncanny instances where like well I'll just tell you what happened I was walking in the woods and I had this sudden feeling that something happened with my younger daughter, who was at camp. And so I just ran over there. And literally 15 minutes after I'd been there, she had fallen in the pond out of her kayak. And she was fine. Like, she, you know, she can't swim, but she was wearing the lifer jacket, but she was really upset. And I literally felt that, like, out on the trail, which is crazy. I mean, but why
1: I really do feel like and another, a number is of things happened.
0: It's not crazy. I don't think it's crazy, but I feel the need to validate it by saying
1: you are totally crazy. This is where we have we have come into such an intellectual society that we have forgotten the miracle of where we live and the miracle of our own being. Now we all know we're intuitive, right? We all know we pick up energies from people we meet, whether we like them, whether there's somebody we could relate to. Yeah. Uh, it's not uncommon to think about someone you haven't talked to for a year and they call you.
0: Of course, that happens to everyone.
1: Uh, and we think, oh wow, isn't that weird? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yet, we're fine with holding these wireless containers that get messages from all over. Why don't we give our brains and our own being enough respect to think we're doing it. Yeah. We're just not honoring it. We've shut down the receiver. We're receiving, we've shut down the understanding that we're getting that message. Right. You know, it's it's a much bigger, more uncomplicated, I don't know how to understand it, but I believe in the miracles of the universe and understanding the system. So, this is why Cerenbi is laid out with all sacred geometry.
0: Yeah, so tell me about that. I was reading a little bit about the so, Omega pattern, right? It,
1: it's, well, it, the Omega pattern is one of the pieces that happened, but the okay. p- it's not about the pattern. Okay. It's about understanding that there are energy fields in the atmosphere and in the earth. Very much what you're talking about in Your Daughter Was Fearful and you responded. You knew it. Yeah. On some level.
0: And I listened to it because you, I had the quiet around me to listen to that's it. That's right. And, right. You, and, yeah. and, you,
1: and being in nature somehow gave you that confidence to believe. Right. There was nothing your brain told you. And if you been in many stations, you would have shut it out. Oh, that's, that's, that's silly. I'm just being a word. Yeah. But you were in a place you could listen to your heart and your gut. Right. And as that energy feels, it's here. And so this is why if you... This, is, this relates to the biophilic approach that we're all connected, this whole energy force is connected. Uh, now, if you look at the farmer's almanac, if you talk to any of the old farmers here that are more grounded with the earth just because that's what their life, if they're gonna drill for a well, what do they do? I don't know. They get the old divining rod out and go out and see where the metal turns down.
0: They that's, still do that? They
1: still do that. Wow. See, you are aware of it. That's, that's an energy field that yeah. they know that the water is responding to the metals. Right. That's happening everywhere. And we have stepped away from it. So when you look, if you, we have been developing places for, for the last century, at least and beyond that, to where we impose plans upon the earth rather than understanding the earth and developing a plan that relates to it. So, it Depends so happened... Like. By, oh, that's one piece, yeah. yeah. And so, when Phil and I, I had walked this land for seven years in my retirement. I knew this land, I knew the rocks, I knew the trees. Yeah. I, I knew where to go if I wanted to be calmed. I knew where I wanted to go if I was had a speech I was going to do, or I need, you know, and, and there's different places that brought different energies, and I knew where to go. Yeah. So, so I was tapping into those energy sources. Uh, raising three teenage daughters, I knew where to walk, depending on what was happening. Uh,
0: <laughs> where they probably wanted to walk, depending on what was well, happening. Or, to or them. just, yeah, yeah,
1: it was, it was, it was what. what. Yeah. And so when Phil and I walked this place, it. Uh, In fact, we were thinking hill towns because we'd both gotten back from Italy. But as we walked it, we realized that this was going to be a much more nurturing and it needed to be down in the valleys by this water, which is the feminine healing energy. Yeah. And so it ends up that it was Omegas that worked to do that. And so we really designed this according to what we were feeling when we walked the land and when we looked at the topography maps. Now it was after that that I said to Phil, like six months later, I said, Phil, what's the pattern? So the pattern comes after you understand the relationships. Yeah. And it is a philosopher's kite, is the whole thing, and it comes right down through the center path. And there's various points on the kite, and it's all laid out here in the pattern. That we just intuitively did when, when having a balanced thing that worked with nature wow now, we wanted it balanced so if you're going to have a road running up here we wanted it to balance on the so so we're in balance is a piece of of doing everything nature i mean yeah everything in nature is balanced um, i'm not sure what it is you know, there is a, a total balance
0: we're looking at a leaf right now what kind of tree is that i'm going to put uh, you on that, the spot
1: that is an oak tree it is an oak. and if i take the leaf and fold it it's a balanced So everything in nature has the two sides. It might not be perfectly balanced, but it's pretty balanced. Yeah. And I don't care what you look at in nature. That is what's happening. Right. And our lives should be that same thing. So, uh, now, what I love is, is after this plan was in place, um, we decided to build a labyrinth. And so we brought uh, folks out to... um, help us facilitate and we invited friends and family from across the United States and 40 people showed up from New York to California and in the course of three days we built the labyrinth that you see. Yeah. And Phil Tab, who was our land planner and a trained sacred geometrist, uh, was in from Texas. And so he uh, didn't get a flight that Sunday night and we're sitting at dinner and, and he says, man, where we put the labyrinth, I just felt the energy. Now, this is a place that I used to go meditate.
0: I see people meditating often there mm -hmm. now. And
1: so when we decided to do it, I said, I know the place that overlooks the lake, and I I find it very calming, and I go there to meditate. Yeah. And it's fairly flat. So that was just me intuitively saying this is where we're going to put it. So Phil, he said, man, I felt the energy the whole three times. He said, it's got to fit into the bigger pattern. Let's see where it is on our map. And so he, we found the maps, and he rolled out the map, and it turns out it makes a perfect triangle with the Future Arts Center up in the middle of the, of the, the kite, and down here it's a perfect triangle.
0: Isn't that amazing? Wow.
1: So that's being intuitively the very yeah. much like you were about needing to do something, and that happens all the time here.
0: Yeah. And I know. S- I've, I've really noticed it. It took about a month of... Uh, you know, walking the trails a lot, and then I, I started noticing it about
1: a month in. And it means you're, yeah. you're you're relaxing enough to touch into nature and the forces of our universe. Yeah. Hallelujah. How can I hold on to that, Steve, back in Los Angeles? That is for you to find out. Yeah. And we have to find out how to build these components within our cities. And one of the biggest places, as I talked to. City planners and and, and urban folks is let's look at our parks and our stormwater. Uh, A lot of times, the head of the stormwater department and the head of the parks department don't know each other or rarely meet. Yeah. And they should be absolutely together. And a lot of our stormwater infrastructure in our cities is crumbling, and we need to redo it. Los Angeles, you're turning that big. Uh, concrete ditch into a bio. Oh, the LA River. Yes. And more and more cities. A lot of it's in pipes that used to be the only way you could deal with stormwater in hard surfaces or pipes. And what finally uh, the regulators have come around to realize that when they do that, they're taking the stormwater that's polluted from our streets and they're putting in a hard surface where it builds up speed, but it has to come out somewhere yeah. and it's destroying all of our tributaries all over because of the way we've required stormwater management. So now we're changing that to require daylighting, doing that. So if you look for a, across from where you're staying, you'll notice the path that goes down to where uh, Snow Queen is. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a bioretention swell rather than a pipe running. And there's a path, and you have blueberry bushes and figs and I
0: know. We did not even trees. talked about the blueberry bushes. I mean, that's, that would be such an easy thing for a place like L.A. or any city to do, too.
1: Anyone. What it does, it's the environmental, is food, it, it, it's, it's community. a community yeah. engagement. It's yeah. a biophilic approach because it's it combines several of these things.
0: Yeah, and it's thoughtful. I mean, I, that's what I notice here. Everything here is so clearly thought out
1: Mm -hmm. yeah because we listen to our heart and our gut rather than intellectually what we should do yeah it's it's not complicated but it's more like we have to take down our fear projectors to do places like this yeah thank you so much steve (laughs) well thanks it's been such a share the word come back and see us now
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head on over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson1. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at JenniferGrayson.com where you can sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll be back soon with a new episode.